This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. So welcome, Eric Anderson, Awards Watch and Pop Culture Confidential back again. Ah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So um, how are you? I worry about you over there between the fires and everything else. How are you doing? You know, I- ironically, that's almost like an evergreen statement now because we're, we're in a reprieve right now. The temperatures are down and, and, and things are good. We had a flare up last week, a really scary one because we had four days of weather that was between 105 and 115 degrees for four days. And it just sparked up uh, a new fire in the same place. And, but it went away really quickly. And so we're just, we're just keeping really on alert because this is very early in the fire season for up here. October is traditionally when we worry about things and not August. <laughs> So we're just we're just keeping aware and, and and keeping safe. Well, let's get into some other hot topics. <laughs> Bad segue. <laughs> <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> let me let me introduce what we're going to talk about. We have so much to cover. So the Venice Film Festival just closed the season's seemingly only in-person festival. Toronto and New York are buzzing, although they're mostly virtual. And now we can clearly see which movies are in the running and taking the lead towards Oscar. We're going to get into those movies as well as talk about the announcement that the Academy made regarding their new rules for representation and inclusion standards for best picture. What does this mean? Some are calling them too harsh and some not enough. And Eric, you were actually the first or that I read anyway to suspect that Madonna was keeping busy during quarantine co-writing her own biopic. I, I saw that on your Twitter feed and since then, she has confirmed that this is the case. She confirmed this with a one-hour-long Insta Live in typical Madonna fashion. So I have to ask you all about this. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. I'm excited for this, and I, I don't know. I don't know if I was the first. I think I was just one of the first because I I do a little bit of detective work, and I want to see what's going on. And obviously, once you know. Uh, Madonna was posting her her Instagram stories of, and hashtagging screenplay and Diablo Cody. I mean, we knew something was going on, obviously. But the way that she was kind of leading us to what it was going to be by showing her old journals of, you know, lyrics and and stuff from 1983, we we realized pretty quickly that this was going to be a biopic, and she had been in the process of possibly directing again, and that didn't really happen. And we didn't know what her next film project was going to be. And there's a fantastic Blacklist screenplay uh, called Blonde Ambition of her life, but there's no way ever that that would get made because there are a few people that, that demand and deserve creative control as much as Madonna does. So this is going to be completely her control. And I know some people are worried about that and it's content. <laughs> but the thing that, that what do you think? The thing that makes me actually feel great about it is that unlike WE, which she wrote as well, and it is a very bad movie, 
with some fantastic parts and 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 a few good performances i think she she understood that maybe that wasn't her strong suit and bringing on an oscar winner <laughs> like Diablo cody was super smart and super shrewd and i think it's going to help a little bit with her critics as well but uh the thing that i'm most interested about as far as that collaboration goes is that I think that Cody's going to infuse a humor that I know Madonna has but sometimes doesn't come across the way that she wants it to so I think if she can just if she can just work with her on you know the story and the outline and I guess the screenplay is at 109 pages they said in in the story they're just you know grow going chronologically or however they're doing it i i i have actually great expectations for it i'm i'm really excited but do you think that diablo cody can you know sort of fight back against the madonna control <laughs> i don't know how much anybody really can but um and and watching you know some of their their interactions has been fun and and it's pretty clear that cody knows her place in the in the dynamic but it's funny it's great and i i'm i like i said i am i actually expect more than than i was going to before and this is also the the only way that we were ever going to get a madonna story with madonna songs in it why is the blacklist script so great have you read it yeah it's just i just think it is a very I think it's an honest look at her life. I think it's, 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 um, I, I don't know. I don't have the best way to describe it. I think it, it feels less biopicy than, than a lot do, but I just know, you know, that she's not, if she's not behind it 100%, then there is no, there's no chance. And it's kind of too bad. It would be, it would have been better, I think, to, to collaborate there, but then you, you, Madonna would be sort of coming from behind in it. Right. And this way, yeah, this way she's she is championing it and, and and leading it. And she can't be anything else. She's a very honest person when she wants to be. I'm not afraid that the things that she wants to tell warts and all, she will. Well, there isn't a biopic that is warts and all in a way that would satisfy every person. And honestly, the the more common thing to be doing right now is these like slice of life biopics so it's not a whole story it's like one year because when you have somebody of tremendous fame or notoriety and with an extremely long career you can't tell 35 years of a career in a two-hour film you would you would need a, a miniseries so what's really interesting about this is that it we know that at least the scope is going to be from her career beginnings to Evita. So that's like 1983 to 1996. We don't know if it's going to go past that or not, but we do know that it's that period at least. We also know that as well as Julia Garner, she's been looking at other actresses and... Oh, Julia Garner would be amazing. What a lot of, you know, rumors and conjecture and what, you know, we're kind of talking about now is the possibility of hiring multiple actresses to play her in different parts of her life and do sort of a not quite i'm not there but 
something like that, which, Bob Dylan, which I think is an amazing idea. All genders, all but everything, yeah. It would be so fun. So I'm hoping that it's like that. I think that'd be super cool. I'm thinking of like Truth or Dare, which I still think is an amazing movie where she, you know, she told everything in that one. And if she can sort of do that in biopic form, I think we're pretty safe. But this may ruin our friendship, (laughs) but I have this little feeling that Mariah's book is going to be even better than this biopic. Um, You know, I think we can enjoy both. Yes, I think so. I just really like the the New York Magazine profile of her. Yeah, I'm I'm actually really liking too where a lot of these 80s, 90s pop divas are feeling so finally comfortable in their skin. And not that Mariah Carey was not, you know, always able to kind of say what she wanted, but certainly much more in the second half of her career. And just her, I don't know, her her confidence and bravado has I don't know. It it feels it feels more more honest. I think she she kind of finally feels like it's deserved, and and that's always a hard thing to do for for women in any element of the entertainment industry or almost any industry is the the feeling that you have the right to your own opinion about yourself, and not simply what people are saying about you and have said about you. And I think Mariah. So many people still don't know the songwriter that she is, that she really deserves to to shine not only as the artist she's always been and one of the best vocalists, but also, you know, the creator of some of the most iconic songs ever. I agree, totally. As with Madonna. Either way, I'm looking forward to both of them and it's time for these 80s divas. We have a few more that we could, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing a couple other biopics me too. Share, maybe? Oh, God, I would love that. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked. Tenet rolled out. Uh, Venice pulled off a festival against all odds. Um, tell me about your thoughts on Venice in general. I was really dubious about their ability to hold an in-person festival. And I know that they, it was a combination uh, that there was, you know, virtual and, and uh, in-person I had representation there that was you know doing reviews virtually and not in in person and it's tough because as with any type of event in this age of covid we are not going to know the negative impact of it for a little while so unless we find you know a whole bunch of cases popping up uh, I, it, it seems like it was successful. And because, <clears throat> you know, it was isolated to to people there and you couldn't, you know, send your, your U.S. representation to Italy to go there. That's certainly the way to protect it and keep it, you know, from kind of spreading, spreading, spreading. So I, I look forward to seeing that it did not do that. And I hope that that's the case. Uh, but I certainly applaud trying to achieve a level of normalcy in the most unnormal year. And it also looked like a great selection of films. Really, really good. Um, I've got some great reviews up at Awards Watch from Sabina uh, Petkova, who's a brand new contributor for Awards Watch. I was really excited to work with her. And so I hope people read those. And it looks like it was really successful. What do you think about Nomadland? I 
think Nomadland is kind of a miracle mm. of a movie. I, I saw it two days ago and it is, there's a lot of films this year that are feeling very zeitgeisty and very of the moment. And they cover an extremely wide range of subjects and themes. And Nomadland is certainly one of those. Uh, but I think the, the thing that was so successful to me is that at every single moment, McDormand and Zhao kept the story from ever being about pity or making us, you know, feel sorry for anybody because the nomadic lifestyle of the people in the film, and most of them are real nomads, was a, a chosen life. And so the, the film is about people living in their RVs, really. And, and, and the cast is ma mainly people live that lifestyle, non-actors. Yes. And, and it is also a combination story-wise of people that did it out of choice and did it out of, or did it out of uh, financial distress, as is with McDormand's case. She lived in this very small town with a single uh, industry in it that folded. And when that happens, the town just disappears. And we've seen that in the United States over the last 50 years quite a bit where whether it's coal mining uh, or, or any, any type of heavy industrial job like that, it's, it, it disappears. And that, that's, that's a, a place that's you know, funded an entire town. So between her husband dying and the town virtually disappearing, she opted to have a nomadic lifestyle instead of reconnect with her her family and that is a big part of the film as well um i just feel like it can speak to a lot of people in the united states something i said on twitter too that kind of it drives me crazy when people complain about hollywood not making movies about air quote real people and real mm -hmm. americans and this is the kind of story they're talking about. This is the kind of people they're talking about, but it's not the kind of movie that they would ever see in order to gain that insight and representation, which is unfortunate because oftentimes the people that need to see a story the most are the ones that don't. This is a movie that is going to obviously and already has charmed critics and people that are already whether it's East Coast or West Coast, they're, they're already kind of like in the mode and ready for a movie like this. But is in a sense, is that sort of speaking to the choir about a story like this? Because we already want to sympathize, we want to empathize and understand, but the people that need to see the movie the most and could benefit the most from it might not see it. Chloe Zhao could be historic in the fact that if she gets the best director, that would make her the first Asian female best director nominee for an Oscar, right? It would. And I do think now that it is absolutely happening. Mm -hmm. and, and I say Yay. absolutely, I say absolutely with still a grain of salt in knowing that we just don't know what is happening this year. And we probably won't until like 
February, yeah. <laughs> which is which is fine. It's totally fine. We don't even know, you know, if half these movies are even going to come out still. Um, but I do. I feel very, very good for her chances for uh, many reasons. One of which we'll talk about in a little bit, and that's the Academy inclusion uh, rules that that came out last week. But I also think that not only has she been building herself in just three films. Uh, as a director of note that people really love and respect and want to work with. But there are always stepping stones that get people there. I think Lulu Wong last year uh, was a huge breakthrough for Chinese American filmmakers and with The Farewell, and she won the, the Spirit Award. So I think... I think that sometimes in order to be the first, you can't be. <laughs> you have you can't to be step the one... on the shoulders of others. Yes, of others. I think that's really common. And I think that's what's going to happen this year. I think it probably would have happened anyway with this film and with her, because it is going to be such a, a major player. And she's also directing a Marvel movie now, The Eternals. Yeah. She, she is in an absolutely perfect position right now for this. Another thing coming out of Venice and also everywhere else, all the festivals that, that we're talking about um, that could be a first is that Regina King, could she be the first female Black Best Director nominated for an Oscar? So when we, when we talked, I think, or like emailed the other day, I said, I'm going to try and see this movie. I saw it last night. And? And? I'm, oh, I loved it. I think it's. I think it's brilliant. I think it's amazing. I I hope that she and the film can can do well. I will say I'm a little bit hesitant to say that she can get in, in in best director. I think it'll be tough, but I want it to happen. I think it is an absolutely brilliant movie. I think it avoids so much staginess uh, with fantastic camera work and multiple locations. So it's called One Night in Miami, and it's basically one night, right, where um, Cassius Clay and several others are just talking before his big fight. It utilizes flashbacks, and actually the entire intro before we even get to the hotel uh, takes place before that so that we can, we can have scenes and moments with each of the four uh, characters that we are going to be with for the, the rest of the film, and that is Cassius Clay before he uh, becomes Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. And perfect performances by everybody. I mean, just perfect. I highlighted uh, uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir as Malcolm X and Eli Gorey as Muhammad Ali, mostly because they have kind of the most to do, but also too, these are two titans uh, of Black American history that have been portrayed before famously. So I think, I think both Gory and Adir had an uphill battle with how they were going to present uh, people that are pretty well known. And I just think that they succeeded so well but that doesn't take anything away from Aldous Hodge's fantastic Jim Brown and uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Sam Cooke, which was also aces. 
Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton, which I'm just, I'm sure is amazing as Sam Cooke. He really, really is. And, and a lot of his singing is uh, live singing. And yeah, he has just tremendous moments. Another female-driven movie, Ammonite, has also been much buzzed about, but it felt like the critics were not as high on it as expected. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. There, I did, you know, obviously read the reviews and, and, and look at it, and my critic, I think, gave it a B minus and liked it, but, I mean, did refer to it as cold, which is always, I worry sometimes about specifically that word as it can be attached to lesbian stories like Carol or Portrait of a Lady on Fire, both of which were kind of saddled with this, this kind of phrasing uh, that there was too much restraint or something like that. And, you know, in all three of those stories, we are literally talking about women that were forced to restrain their their feelings and who they were so the idea of presenting it that way makes sense it's it just makes sense i think with regards to ammonite though it's coming off just a year after portrait of a lady on fire which was such a massive critical hit so I'm just going to mention that Ammonite is Shearsha Ronan and Sorry. Kate Winslet, right? <laughs> um, it's a period piece. Well, I keep forgetting to, I just start talking about things like everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about instead of like prefacing it. I'm here it to with, interrupt you. <laughs> perfect. I need it. Yeah, I just, Kate Winslet got great notices pretty much across the board. Uh, Saoirse Ronan, a little bit mixed. I think the, the overall mixed to positive for the film, but I do think that it does suffer in the shadow of how critically praised Portrait was last year. There's a lot of lesbian period pieces at the moment. That one, Portrait, this one, and also the Mona Fostwald picture. Now I, I'm losing the name of that one, Something in the World. Yes, that's also Vanessa Kirby too, who won Best Actress. Yeah, for not for that one though. Yeah, for Pieces of a Woman. But it's also Vanessa Kirby from The Crown. I mean, just saying that in general, there's a, a few of them now <laughs> in that genre, if that, we I can know. call that a genre. <laughs> I think you can now. I think it, I tweeted last, last week uh, th- that I, you know, I wish I loved something as much as film festivals love 18th and 19th century white lesbian movies, because my God, it's, they're, they're, if, this, if video stores were still around, they'd have their whole, a whole section on the, the whole aisle. Because there's a lot. There's a lot right now. Uh, do you, are you seeing these two actors in Oscar buzz, Shirsa and uh, Kate? Uh, definitely both of them are, are absolutely still in. And, you know, it's when we're doing early predictions, it's everything is sight unseen. So now that we have festival presence, uh, we can speak with at least a little bit more authority on it rather than, you know, too much gut instinct. So yeah, I do think that, that, that they're in the race, but then, you know, you've also got Netflix buying every goddamn movie on the planet when they already have, you know, 10 things that they need to juggle as contenders. I don't know what, I don't know how they're going to do this. And then, and in doing it by not showing at any festivals, 
And they, it's interestingly, we've just been talking about all these women directors and Netflix has the big male guns coming out with Fincher, Sorkin, Wes Anderson. Well, and this is, this is the thing that seems to happen every year and, and why I sometimes start to feel like Charlie Brown and then the Academy is like Lucy with the football. <laughs> because we look at these tremendous female directors and their films and go, okay, wow, they can, they can get nominated. We're going we're gonna to see that this year. We try and carry that down the field as much as possible. And then the Academy's like, nope, we're just going with dudes. Mm-hmm. And then when you have somebody like David Fincher or Aaron Sorkin, who are already proven uh, Academy uh, favorites, it's hard to, that creates an extra obstacle that wouldn't all otherwise be there. Not to mention the fact that when, you know, you're, all of these films and stories are coming from the same studio or streamer, you have to then wonder how they're going to prioritize and, and balance things out. Because, you know, they also have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and that is going to be a real contender for them, Hillbilly Elegy. They, you could have a Best Picture lineup of 10 movies that's like all Netflix. Yeah, and they just bought the one that you were mentioning before that Vanessa Kirby won in Venice for Best Actor. Pieces of a Woman. Pieces of a Woman. They just bought that for a tremendous amount right off of Venice, so they'll have everything. And they bought Halle Berry's Bruised, her directorial debut, and <laughs> which was a work in progress at the time, so it's not quite finished yet. And I think it would be insane to try and release either of those this year for contention and especially in the best actress race they it's 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 really it's really full and they're going to have a full best actress uh, slate next year too because they have Ana de Armas in Blonde they, Mar- Marilyn Monroe yeah they have Melissa McCarthy in The Starling they have um a Sandra Bullock movie they're they're just they have too much <laughs> Eric we will all be working for Netflix <laughs> eventually I feel like it's inevitable I have to say that I'm really looking forward to Fincher's Mank about Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter, um, Orson Welles screenwriter on Citizen Kane that was actually written by Fincher's father. I have a really good feeling about it. I do too. And I like the first look at it. Um, I'm excited for, for Amanda Seyfried and, and everybody in it. I'm, yeah. And I, th- I don't think he's made a movie. He's done a lot of good TV, but he hasn't made a movie since like 2014 or something like that. That Yeah, Gone Girl was his last film. If I put you on the spot here and have to say five pictures you definitely think will be in the running for best picture at the moment, what would they be? Mank, Nomadland. Gosh, I need to go look at my old predictions now. You know, we just saw the, the first teaser for Trial of the Chicago 7. That's Aaron Sorkin, yeah. Which is one of those movies that is speaking to right now in and they know that because the trailer is very shrewdly edited and created to feel extremely relevant. The trailer was incredible. The world is watching. The world is watching. I was on my feet. <laughs> it was yeah. it's it's a good trailer. It's a really good trailer. Um but it's it's tough. It's tough to to really look outside of that right now. And I know that I have always, I've always loved doing super early predictions and and being very, maybe what's the right word? Arrogant about them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be oh, honest. I, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely, it can do that. And 
And this obviously is a tougher year where that is not, not as simple to do. So as, as we see things, I think it's easier to do. I think um, The Father. Yeah, just before we logged on, I was watching the new trailer that they released. That's Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. Anthony Hopkins plays her father who has Alzheimer's. That looks strong. I'm pretty much like just hand him the Oscar now. I, I feel like that too. There's, there's, you know, some feelings of like Amour in there, which was also Sony Pictures classics. I think uh, Judas and the Black Messiah from Warner Brothers has huge potential. Again, another very timely idea and theme and subject, even though it takes place 50 years ago. There's a lot of that going on. Um, we haven't heard very much of News of the World, the, the Tom Hanks from Paul Greengrass. We did see finally one picture from it. That's all we have. It's <laughs> um, a Western, right? It is a Western. And I'm, I'm super excited to see what Greengrass brings to a Western. Yeah. He brings his traditional style or if he does something if he does something different, I'd love that. Uh, we saw the first teaser for Dune, and I think there's potential for that. And I think just when looking at the Oscars and looking at Best Picture, the voters are going to try and gravitate to as many studio films as they can because it looks pretty bleak for studio films this year. I think we are. we know that we're going to have some independent films because they're going to be more broadly seen than uh, than these tentpole movies that aren't going to go to video on demand in a way that that other things can. But won't the Netflix films be the most broadly seen? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's visibility is going to be a key to everything, to everything, and that gives Netflix a humongous advantage. That gives One Night in Miami an advantage. Um, I think they're going to try and find a balance. I don't know, you know, what theaters are going to look like in December. Netflix also has the prom <laughs> that opens in, in December. But I know that, you know, studios and, and everybody wants to be able to, uh, to go to the movies, to have, you know, some kind of box office success. I know that that Tenet is doing okay worldwide, but obviously not here in the United States. It's probably not going to clear 50 million in the U.S. Understandably so, but we also need to reevaluate what box office standards are. They can't. Nothing that's happening this year can be put up against years before. It's it's unfair to do that. It's a completely unprecedented situation, of course. Yeah. It has to be judged and looked at entirely uh, to what this year is. And honestly, when it comes to Oscar stuff, I already do that anyway. I, I look at history, but I have to look at everything completely from the bubble of this year. What's happening politically and socially and, and, and all of the things. And that's, yeah, that's the only way that, that I can do that. Well, it's interesting how relevant so many of these movies we've been talking about feel. It's like something's been bubbling under the surface. So, and it, it's a it's a very interesting range of movies. I'm not disappointed. I'm very much looking forward to several of them. But before we move on to our last um, subject here, uh, is there anything else that I've forgotten to mention that you wanted to take up from the buzz of the festivals or? Well, I, I think it's, 
one of the one of the great things that festivals often do outside of you know the big the big movies that we all want to talk about and see is the the non-english language films that end up being in contention for the international feature film oscar we only have two right now two official submissions and that's because the eligibility uh deadlines are all extended normally i think it's october 1st uh is when an the international feature film submissions have to be locked in. So we know generally pretty early when those are going to happen and we can talk about them a lot and we can highlight them in uh, Venice and Cannes and Toronto. And we don't have a whole lot. We only have Poland and Switzerland, but both of those have been seen, which is good. We do also have the potential for other choices. Uh, New Order from Mexico, uh, is is possible. It's a very parasite-like class warfare film. And I do have a couple of writers and contributors that uh, are going to be creating uh, pieces and features that are highlighting these potential uh, contenders for that. But it's it's a little tougher with, with a lack of in-person festivals to be able to do that. It'll be back. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to what happened, which lots of people are talking about, is that the Academy announced new rules, inclusivity rules. That basically means that um, in order to submit for best picture, you have to follow certain rules for representation and um, inclusivity in the making of this movie. Some people went bananas saying that this was liberal bullshit. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm reading that most people say that it's pretty weak, that people are doing this anyway, that it's basically, um, if you're not doing it, you really should, that it's not that difficult. What's your say? In, in a way, all of those things are true. Um, I mean, obviously, I am in favor of, of inclusionary measures because they do just create uh, a more balanced and anyone that wants to say that any of this is should be merit-based is dismissing the fact that you can't get into the race of being merit-based with the way things are. So without equality and without inclusionary measures, you can't make a fair judgment on what is merit-based and what is not. Because the things that have not had a chance haven't had the chance. So I do, I rebuke the whole concept from, let's just say, largely straight white males that are really upset about this, but I could care less what straight white males have to say. They've had nothing but say since the beginning of time, so fuck them. Um, but on the other side, when you're looking at what the, the standards are and what the requirements are, it seems like a lot, but it's actually not. If you go back, everyone's like, well, how could you make 1917 in this day? Because and the Irishman would never be made and things like none that. None of that is true. None of it's true. And the reason why is because people look at headlines and they don't read stories. And so they bring up those like same Ford versus Ferrari. How are you going to make, you know, this kind of movie again? My, my white man movie, I'll never get to see Joker again. Um, read the fucking story, read the rules because there are so many rules and ways to hit these standards, most already do. 
1917 does. The Irishman does. It's basically the whole team. Everyone working on the movie is are part of these rules. So it's not in any way just the cast. It is. People people are really just kind of looking at those the first thing, which is let me look at it really quick. It's the standard A A1. And it's lead or significant supporting actors. At least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. Asian, Hispanic, Latinx, Black, African American, Indigenous, Native American, Alaska Native, Middle Eastern, North African, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, or other underrepresented race or ethnicity. And people took that as something that it's not. And it is only one section Mm -hmm. it's one section it also because this is not going to go into effect until the 96 oscars yeah it's 2024 it's 2024 they have many years to figure out how to do this accurately and appropriately because there are absolutely elements of this that they are going to need to to hash out legally which we'll talk about in just a second um but there are there's so many ways to hit these standards. And a lot of people already did research on the last few years of the Oscars, as an example. Uh, that like every every Best Picture nominee would have, have gotten in anyway. And this is just for Best Picture also. This is only for Best Picture. Any other thing like animated or doc or international feature film will have their own like reevaluation, but obviously it's going to be completely different than something like this. Uh, I read really backwards comments from people that were like, well, how could Parasite get made if there's no white people in it? And again, that is not looking at the (laughs) rules. It's not reading and it's not understanding them. Uh, So the pushback is mostly because people aren't reading which is not a shock because we live in an era where headlines tell the stories and articles are pushed aside and it's you don't have the exact twitter character Mm -hmm. ratio then people you know we don't have time for more (laughs) yeah you've i mean you, you have to be careful with your headlines and i know that i uh i am very intentional about my headlines for stuff whether i want it to explain exactly what's involved or, you know, if I do want it to kind of raise an eyebrow and have people click it and, and understand it. But still, there is a huge responsibility to anybody that writes for anything to be able to, to be honest with what your headline is, is saying. And what were you mentioning about the legalities, the legal aspects of this? So one of the other elements is... Uh, and this is in standard A in section A2, and it's the general ensemble cast. And it says at least 30% of all actors in secondary or more minor roles are from at least two of the following underrepresented groups, women, racial or ethnic group, LGBTQ+, people with cognitive or physical disabilities, or who are deaf and hard of hearing. Uh, Now, again, this is kind of easy because since women is one of those categories you could just populate your movie with you know a group of white women and you there you go you you get a2 you meet that standard but the thing that threw a lot of people into a bit of a 
tizzy and alarm, and justifiably so, is that uh, productions have to submit uh, forms that are confidential that substantiate meeting these requirements. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to uh, yeah, there's some privacy issues. Something, there. yeah, there are privacy issues and legal issues that are absolutely could stand in the way of this. Like, are you forcing people to be out on set? Uh, and and again, this covers behind and in front of the camera, not not just actors. It's it's both sides that that, that gets you you know qualification. So you cannot ask somebody if they're gay. You cannot ask somebody what their disability is. That's just against the law in the United States. So the unions in the film industry are going to have to work with the film academy on how they can establish these requirements. And this is extremely, extremely important. And why, uh, I mean, I saw some people like, why don't they do this this year? It's like, are you kidding? Yeah. There's, there's no way. There's no way they yeah. could. The, the, these have, have to, to lawyer up. They, they they have to take time in order to do it correctly because, as expansive as as this seems, it's not really that much. There's it's not that much. But the thing that um, I think that I find the most positive and the thing that I like about it the most is that when uh, when Oscar So White happened, like four years ago. The, the pressure was on the Oscars to do something about it, to nominate more uh, Black movies or whatever that, the, that it, it be that year. And that is, that's the top of the chain. And that doesn't, um, that doesn't have any impact on the filmmaking process itself. So a lot of people said, well, this, it's just awards and nobody, this doesn't change anything with the movies. And they're right, it doesn't. So this is taking action in that other part, in how films are made. And if you want a Best Picture nomination, then you better follow these rules. Great. It was a positive show today, Eric. The past few ones have been like, oh my God, we're never going to see another movie. <laughs> we're never going to do anything. <laughs> and we have so much to look forward to and lots of things happening anyway. I have to say, I really needed that boost. Same here. It's I was really happy this weekend to to see to see some movies and to to read reactions and to feel some normalcy. We're back. Yes, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Eric, thank you so much as always. I'll be calling on you again. Oh my god, it's one of my favorite things to do, so I'm I'm more than happy. Hello and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. 
You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.